Well, we are going to begin a new series today called God's Mercy and the Devil's Grace. Now, I realize that this title might sound a little peculiar or maybe even a little off in your mind. I assure you it's not a typo. This is my intention. My intention is to send a message to tell a story. If you haven't noticed, as I just mentioned, the church is falling apart at the seams. It really is. Think about what's happening in the world today. Our country is literally spiritually collapsing. We have sexual immorality running amok, idolatry, covetousness. We have unforgiveness. We have bitterness. We have division. We have fear. We have confusions. And understand something. It's in the church. That's not just the world, but it's in the church. And it is time for us to ask the question, why? Why are these things happening? How did we get here? You ever, you ever wonder when you get yourself in a situation and you re- sit back and you reflect, you go, what in the world happened? How did I get to this point? There have been married couples that are married 30 years and all of a sudden end up in divorce and the wife is sitting back going, what happened? What happened to our marriage? I'm telling you, this is our scenario right now. In the modern-day Christian church, this is the scenario, and it is time we assess. It is time we step back. And let me tell you something. When you begin to investigate what has happened and why things are happening the way they are, and all this immorality is running amok, when you investigate it, you will actually find, you go to the very root, you go to the core of it all, and I promise you, you will find there has been an intentional, a strategic attack against the grace message. That's where it all begins. That's the very core of it all. There's been a strategic attack by Hasatan to come and pervert the beautiful grace message that God has given in its pure form that was to bring life, that was to bring joy, that was to bring salvation. Satan has come and he has corrupted it. And he does it very, very cleverly because how does he do it? Well, really simply, he takes perversion and corruption and he clothes it in righteousness. He clothes it in righteousness. And what he is doing is peddling ultimately a weapon of death, a weapon of total destruction. Any question to this? Open your eyes. Look at the church. Look at this country. Look at the world. There's no question about it. I want to open up today by going to the book of Jude. Jude 1.3, and this is what we read. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is very interesting. Jude is moving out of desperation. He is desperate. He, something has him rattled. Right? He is forced. He has to go and write to his brethren. And write why? It says, to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. What does this tell you? It tells you he knows we're at war. He knows we're at war. He is crying out to his brethren, wake up, we're being attacked. And so he tells them, stand up. And fight. You look at the Greek word for contend, it means to fight. We are to stand up and fight. But what's interesting, what is the attack? 
What is Jude so worried about? What's got him rattled? Well, as we continue, we find, we read in verse 4 the following. For certain men have crept in. Oh, look at this. They have crept in unnoticed. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. And I want you to understand something. This is within the body of Mashiach. Within the body of Christ. They've come in and no one recognizes them for who they really are. Ungodly men. They're unnoticed. They can be preaching. They can be teaching. They can be leading studies. They can be sitting right next to you, lifting their hand, praising the Lord. These men have crept in unnoticed. Now he goes on to say, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, and what do they do? Who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. Stealth, Satan coming in by stealth, and the attack right in the first century. What did he go for? Satan went for the jugular. He went for the grace message. That's what he went for, to pollute it and turn it into lewdness, which ultimately means filthiness, total and utter corruption. And because of that, then we see he goes on and deny the uh, only Lord God and our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. See, because when you embrace a corrupted version, you're actually turning your back on that pure and holy one, the pureness of Yeshua. I want you to understand The devil knows just how precious and how powerful the true, the authentic grace message really is. A message that has been under attack from the very first century. So what I am seeing right now that vexes me, that torments the righteous souls, seeing and hearing the lawless deeds as we read about as Lot scenario. We're living in the same scenario, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Am I right? So as we see these things, we look at these things, understand, yes, it's horrible and we should be anguished, but no, we shouldn't be surprised. Praise the Lord for his word that gives us wisdom. Eyes to see and ears to hear. What do we do? We know Satan has gone for the jugular. He's gone to attack the grace message. What do we do? We do what Jude tells us to do. Contend for the faith. It's time to stand up. It's time to fight. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this series, is we're going to contend for the faith. With that said, I I want to just give you a brief overview of some of the things we're going to be covering within this series. And uh, let's begin with the uh, most important, what is grace? I mean, really, has anyone even ever asked the question? I mean, this is 101 belief, right? 101 faith. What is grace? grace and how do you contend how do you fight and defend it you don't know what it is you can't right the second thing we're going to answer is what does it cost if anything thirdly why do we need it fourth how do we obtain it and last but not least what is the relationship of the grace of God in respect to the law of God. Is there a relationship or are they incompatible? Are law and grace in total opposition? Are they diametrically opposed to one another? We're going to find out. So to kick things off, I just want to begin at the top here with what is grace? And what I want to do is I want to give you a couple different uh, different definitions of the term grace. And I want to take you to a secular 
definition first. From Merriam-Webster, we read, Unmerited divine assistance given humans for the regeneration or sanctification. In a, in a sub-definition given, a virtue coming from God. A state of sanctification enjoyed through divine grace. You know, you look at uh, A, this is, it's, a, it's a very good explanation. It's a very good definition of what biblical grace is. Let me give you uh, the definition from Erdman's Bible Dictionary. And this is what is said. God's unmerited favor toward humanity, and especially his people, realized through the covenant and fulfilled through Yeshua HaMashiach. You know, both of these definitions, a secular and a faith-based definitions, both of them did a very good job at actually conveying the grace concept. You notice there's one specific word used in both, and there's actually other definitions I could give you to find the same word. That word is unmerited. Unmerited favor. See, understand something about the grace message. We don't deserve it. It's one of the most important critical aspects to understanding true biblical grace is that none of us deserve it. It's unmerited. Very, very powerful. Now, having said that, there's another definition that I want to show you that comes directly from the Bible. And it is, I believe, the most purest and the best definition that we can have, the most comprehensive. In fact, for me personally, I can speak, uh, it, it really changed my world. And the way as I started navigating through the New Testament and even later on into the Old, as I started navigating through the scriptures, when I understood what I'm about to show you, it unlocked all sorts of doors. Very, very powerful. I want to take you to Paul's letter to Titus. In Titus chapter 2, we read the following. Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God that has been revealed, that has appeared. To, um, who is he talking about? He's talking about Yeshua. Yeshua coming, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The very person who gave his life for us. This literally is the grace of God. And I'm telling you, this is the most, this is the best, purest definition you can have. When you take this and you start going to scripture, it unlocks it. It brings it into a deeper context. Let me give you an example. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. One of the most prolific verses in all of the New Testament in regard to the grace of God. You go up to a typical believer, what do you know about grace? They're going to take you primarily to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Just by grace, we've been saved through faith. If you apply the principle that I just showed you, the very purest definition, that grace is Yeshua, well, we could actually read the text this way. For by Yeshua... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Talk about unlocking doors in the deepness and the richness of understanding in regard to the grace of God. This is it. This is it. It is Yeshua. As you start navigating, you start investigating what really is biblical grace, this is a primary fundamental principle that needs to be applied. It is Yeshua. It, you know what it does? It personalizes it. On a very intense level. 
on what this grace really means. It's personal. Rather than just conceptual, it turns into an intimacy, into relationship. Very, very powerful. So to answer the question, what is grace? Simply put, it is Yeshua. Now, to move on to our second question, we read the following. What does it cost? Well, that depends. And what I mean by that is, well, on one hand, I can tell you, it will cost you everything. Everything you have, it will cost you. And on the other hand, I can legitimately tell you, at the very same time, it costs you nothing. It's a free gift. And I want to show you this scripturally. Yeshua says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Yeshua is grace. You cannot have grace. You cannot have him unless you give up everything. You have to be willing to give up everything. You remember that passage in Matthew 19, the rich young man coming to him and saying, oh, I've done all these things. I've kept all these commandments. He goes, one thing you still lack, go and give, sell what you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And he hung his head and went away sorrowful. Understand something, you want grace, it is going to cost you. It's going to cost all those fleshly desires, everything that the world is telling you that you need, that you have to have, you're going to have to walk away from. Do you want grace? Do you want forgiveness? Do you want redemption? That's what it's going to take. But on the other hand, at the same time, I can tell you it is a free gift. In Romans 5.15, Paul says, but the free gift... It's free, and he uses this specific term multiple times in this chapter. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Messiah Yeshua, abounded to many. Grace of God is free in the context of you cannot buy it. No amount of money is going to get you into heaven. You read in Acts 8, and Simon the magician, he attempted, he saw the power that the apostles had, and he was offering money. And Peter responded to him, your money perish with you. You thought that the kingdom of God could be bought with money. You cannot buy grace. But let me take it a step further. And this is very important. It doesn't matter how many good works you have done. It will not merit your right to enter into the kingdom of heaven, no matter how many works you have done. I love to use this analogy because it really puts it into perspective for you. If you were to strip every human being that has ever existed on the face of the planet, beginning with Adam to today, strip every human being of all the righteous acts and righteous deeds and righteousness they performed, and you were to give them all to one, one single person, That person would not get his way into heaven. That person would not merit the kingdom of heaven. I want you to ponder that. You cannot buy grace. It is a free gift. Now let me take you back and show you Paul's commentary on this. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, we're going back here. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. He couldn't make it clear. It is not of works. 
Nothing you do is going to merit the kingdom of heaven in and of itself. Look at what Paul says in Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness and love of our God and Savior toward man appeared, oh, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. You know, it just conceptually think about what Paul is actually conveying. Can you imagine? Very righteous men getting together back in the day before Yeshua came. I mean, men like David and, and Elijah and Moses and Abraham. Could you imagine them getting together and, and looking up? And we respect these men because they were holy men. And them looking up and say, well, Yeshua, you need to come down. You have to come down. Look at our righteousness. You have to come down. We deserve it. You owe us. Look at everything we have done. The thought is preposterous, and none of those righteous men made such a statement. None of them did. Because they knew what Paul knew. Let me take you to Acts 13. Let me show you Peter's synopsis on this. And keep in mind, Peter is talking to fellow Jewish brethren here. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that though this man has preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things, oh, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. This is a Jew speaking to Jews. And he is telling them, you could not be justified by the law of Moses. All those works and righteousness that you walked in, and they are beautiful, it didn't merit the mercy of God. Let me take you to Galatians 2.15. And this is Paul dialoguing with Peter. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Messiah Yeshua, even we have believed in Messiah Yeshua, that we might be justified by faith in Mashiach and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. No matter where you go, this is what you're confronted with. And it, you know what it does is it literally takes the hammer of God and pounds the pride right out of you. It takes us down. It humbles us. Going to Galatians 2.21, we read the following. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Mashiach died in vain. You know, one of the things that does keep me up at night, that, that, is, that is a very strong concern for me, and this is one of the things we need to talk about in this series, is that with the growth of Torah, I think about, and I'm telling you this, this is not hyperbole, but we are being contacted all over the world, by different parts all over the world, whether South Africa, parts of the UK, uh, uh, Indonesia, all over the world, Canada, there is a mass return to the Torah. Christians are having their scales ripped from their eyes and saying, Matthew to Revelation does not constitute the entirety of the word. It is Genesis to Revelation. And that's a very powerful move. It's very spiritual. But let me add this. In the process of this, and Christians all over the world coming back to a reality of Torah because Yeshua is assembling his pure and spotless bride. If you think for a second that the enemy is not going to come in and attempt to disrupt that work, you're deceived. Because what I'm telling you is he has laid a trap and a snare for those coming in to Torah. He's laid the trap, the snare of legalism. 
And I'm telling you right now, because I've seen it with my own eyes, people are falling into it. And you know what they're doing? They're moving from here. They're moving closer, closer to Torah. And they do exactly what Paul said he would not do. They take the grace of God and they set it aside and they seek to establish their own righteousness in the Torah and they're taken by storm. Total deception. And ultimately, I can't tell you, I just, I cannot tell you how many families have left the faith in their pursuit of Torah. And the reason that has happened is set aside the grace of God. It is, you do this, I promise you. This I can promise you, it's a biblical fact. You set aside the grace of God. If this does not become your foundation, if it is not in your eyesight all the time, Yeshua, who is the grace of God, if you take your eyes off him, you are dead. You will be a dead man. And all that good that you were pursuing and all that righteousness, which is beautiful, is all for nothing. What a waste. So a word of warning, don't do it. Don't set aside the grace of God. Keep your eyes on Yeshua. Only through him can we truly understand Torah. Only through him are we going to be able to walk it out in pureness and holiness. Moving to Galatians 3.21, Paul goes on to say, is the law against the promises of God? Now, you know, the last one of the last questions, the question that I put up there that I said we were going to address, and we're not going to do it today, but looking at the relationship between grace and law. Is there one? Well, here's a little hint right here. This is just a little hint Paul gives us. Is the law against the promises of God? What does that tell you? There might be a relationship here. We'll get further into that later. Certainly not. So the law is not opposed to the promises. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Now think about what Paul just said. Paul just made a statement that, I mean, this is just 101. What would be the point in Yeshua coming if the law gave us life? There's absolutely no point. If we could attain it of our own accord, we don't need Yeshua to come. But we did need Yeshua to come, and the answer is why? Why did we, now we're getting, we're, we're getting deeper here. We're peeling this deeper and deeper. Why did he have to come? Paul actually answers the question for us in the very next verse. But scripture, Torah, I want to be very clear. Paul is talking about Torah. But scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Messiah Yeshua might be given to those who believe. So what is the problem? Sin. And let me take it a step further. Every single one of you have committed it. You understand? Look at what Paul says in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us are exempt. So we have a very serious problem. We need a savior. We need help. Oh, we need grace. That's what we need. Psalms 143. Verse 2. Do not enter. This is David. Do not enter into judgment with your servant. David. I want you to, you, you need to put this into context because David, he was so righteous. He set the bar. All the kings of Judah were measured by his righteousness. In fact, the Lord in speaking with Solomon said, if you walk in the footsteps of your father, David, I will establish your throne. 
1 Kings 15 talks about that David did not turn to the left or to the right in anything or in any of the commandments of the Lord, except in one matter, the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's this man, how righteous he was. And he is crying out to the Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. I can appreciate David's statement. I mean, how many times have you cried out, and I pray that you have cried out, Lord God, forgive me. I have failed. And it vexes you. And that's beautiful because that's a conviction of the Holy Spirit that drives you to repentance. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Not one. And we're talking about righteous men. We're not talking about the world. Righteous men. There's not one righteous man who does good and does not sin. So to identify the problem, the problem is that we have all sinned. And God's holy, his righteous and powerful law, his Torah, condemns every one of us. And what do we know in Romans 6? The wages of sin is death. What has every one of us earned? We haven't earned salvation. We've earned death. We need the Messiah, Yeshua. The Apostle Paul explains explains this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Now, I love this passage because it explains the relationship of sin and law. You, you read Romans 6 and 7. Paul actually utilizes the terms. I challenge you to go home. Paul utilizes the terms sin and law as though they're transposable. And if you didn't know better, it could be very, very confusing. There is a relationship between sin and law. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of that is the law. Think of it this way. I always use the analogy of a snake. When a snake bites you, it's not the bite that kills you. It's the venom. The venom released. And the very same manner, sin is the bite. But that's not what kills you. It's the law. God's perfect and holy judgment comes and bears witness saying, you are wicked. You have failed. You are sinful. And this is why you, you think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You better start hearing these things and understanding these things because they are salvational. These things are salvational. We looked at Paul. We looked at what Peter had to say. I want to take you and show you what John had to say in his gospel. Listen how what he says here. For the law was given through Moshe, but grace and truth came through Yeshua HaMashiach. Okay, so there was a dispensation, and I'm not a fan of that word, so don't take me out of context. I am not a dispensationalist. Let's be clear on that. But dispensation is just simply a matter of a time of revelation. It's that simple. There's a dispensation of law. It came, Torah was revealed through Moses. It was at Mount Sinai. It was revealed. It was given to a nation. They entered into covenant. That's a dispensation of law. But then Yeshua came on the scene, and there's another dispensation. John recognizes it. John didn't say, oh, it's just normal business as usual. No, he makes a distinction. The law comes through Moshe, but grace and truth comes through Yeshua. What did John see? In Yeshua. Why, did his, why does he pair these? Grace and truth. See, I, I want you to think about something. Do you know what truth is? How scripture defines it? Law. 
Your law is truth. Psalm 119, 142. And yet, we have grace coming and meeting with law. What was it that John saw? Well, let me reveal to you what he saw in Proverbs 16, verse 6. And mercy and truth. Same thing. Grace and truth. Mercy and truth. These are transposable terms. And mercy and truth. Atonement is provided for iniquity. Isn't that fascinating? John looks at Yeshua. And what's he see? He sees He's the one. He saw the same thing John the Baptist saw. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, John knew when grace converged, this miraculous convergence of law and grace coming together, he knew what it meant. It meant forgiveness. That's what it meant. It meant forgiveness. Very awesome to see. Psalm 85, verse 10. We read the following. Mercy and truth have met together. Now, this is a prophecy of the Messiah, Yeshua. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. This is the miraculous convergence. You think of righteousness. What does Paul talk about in Romans 3? He talks about, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been revealed. And here you have this prophecy. Righteousness, oh, the law, the Torah, and Shalom, they have kissed. They have kissed in, in, the, in the embodiment of Yeshua when he came. Let me take you to Romans chapter 4. This is what we read. What then shall we say that Avraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? And now this is interesting because where does Paul go? He goes to the Torah. This is where Abraham's recorded in the Torah. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, you can pay, you can work, you can work, and you can work till the cows come home. And all of it is just going to be considered not as your right of entry into the kingdom, only as debt. Period. End of discussion. And this is what Paul's drawing out here. But then he goes on to say, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now I want to be very clear, and you're going to see this in the very next verse. Uh, I only bring this up because it's been brought up to me. But... Some people want to read this and said to him who does not work. Well, this is proof that actually scripture is telling us to rebel against the commandments of God. We're not supposed to do what is holy, what is right. We can just go out. We don't have to work. If we're going to be under grace, I can't work. I mean, this is the mantra. This is what's being peddled. That is not what Paul is saying. Not even close. What is he saying? Well, here's what's interesting. As we continue, we find out in verse 6. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes. So now he's quoting David. He's quoting scripture in the Tanakh. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Isn't that interesting? Paul's not quoting the New Testament. He's not quoting one of the other apostles. He's quoting David, okay? A man who kept 
the commandments of God, who feared God. In all respects, David is a Torah-observant Jew. And what does he say? He says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. This is what he's talking about. Now, that's revelatory. That's a total revelation. Understand, David didn't believe for a second that he in and of himself, in all his righteousness that we're told that he walked in, he didn't believe for a second that he was justified of his own accord. And if you'd like some scriptural support, let's take a look at this. In Psalm 16, verse 1, we read the following. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Oh, and look at this. My goodness is nothing apart from you. You understand what Paul's talking about? Getting at the fact that works cannot save us in and of themselves. So David's on the same page. All his righteousness that he commits, it's all for nothing. It means nothing apart from him, which is to say apart from faith. You read Romans 10, and that's exactly how Paul articulates this scenario of why these Jewish people who have a zeal for Torah, that walk in righteousness, yet not attain to righteousness, because they did not seek it by faith. Understand that. And so here we see David's heart bearing his soul, bearing wisdom for us to download. Let me take you to Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, I will put my trust. Let me never be uh, ashamed. Deliver me. Does he say in my righteousness? Look at how holy and righteous I have been in the Torah. No, deliver me in your righteousness. Now let me point something out to you. Just as I told you, grace literally is defined by Yeshua. You need to understand something. When you read in scripture, righteousness, that is defined Yeshua. This is prophetic. Deliver me in your Yeshua, your salvation, your righteousness. See, God revealed his righteousness to earth through Yeshua. And he cries out, David cries this out. So what's in David's forefront? It's Yeshua. That's what's in his eyes. Psalm 71, verse 16. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours only. <laughs> That's fascinating. He doesn't sit there and tell the Lord all the great things he's been doing within the Torah and how he should be recognized. When David fell to his knees, he cried out and called upon his righteousness, reminded the Lord of who he is. Again, you want to have successful prayer life, you want to take notes on this. You want to have answers from the Lord. There is a way to approach the Lord. When the children of Israel, let me build upon this. When the children of Israel were coming into the land, the promised land, which every single one of it was indicative. The entire scenario was indicative. It was a picture of God's children entering into eternal life, entering into heaven. Well, as they're coming into this land, Moses is not allowed to go over the land, but he sends them this wisdom. He gives them a warning, more of peeling back the scales of their eyes and letting them know the real scenario. Listen to what he says as they are going in to inherit the promised land. In Deuteronomy 9, 4, Do not think in your heart that the Lord your God has cast them, meaning the enemies, out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness... The Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Verse five, 
it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go and possess their land, but because of their wickedness, the wickedness of these nations that the Lord, your God, drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. (laughs) It's interesting, this is a Torah principle. It is not by our righteousness. It is only by the grace and mercy of God. That's exactly what Deuteronomy is talking about. That's exactly what Moses is conveying to his fellow brethren. Let me show you post-commentary. After the children of Israel entered into the land and inherited, let me show you post-commentary that ties in with exactly what Moses just said. We read in Psalm 44, verse 3, For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm. And I have to stop again because we're confronted with Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua everywhere we look. The right hand in scripture, the right arm is explicit. It is a messianic term. It refers to Yeshua explicitly. Understand that. So here again, we see, no, it was your right hand, your arm. It was Yeshua. It was Yeshua of Nazareth. And the light of your countenance. Who is the light of his countenance? Yeshua came in the world and said, I am the light of the world. It's Yeshua. Because you favored them. So they didn't get to enter into land because of their righteousness, but it was only Yeshua. That's our focus. Don't ever take your eyes off of Yeshua. Isaiah 54, 17 I read this already today uh, in the trial and error technology testing issue. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Oh, and their righteousness is from me. Our righteousness is not of ourselves. It is from God. It is from Yeshua. You know, you look at all these passages we just covered The Tanakh, I'm not New Testament, the Tanakh is filled with passages that reveal that justification, redemption, salvation, they only come directly from Elohim himself. Isn't that fascinating? I'm going to tell you something. For you to identify this fact is monumental because this is a reality that could absolutely revolutionize, change modern day Christianity and the way that they look at the Torah. Think about this for a second. A while back, I participated in a debate. Many of you know this. The moderator, he was an attorney, this, this moderator, he sent over the format of the debate. And within the debate, there were specific questions that they wanted the debaters to address at some point within the debate itself. Well, one of the questions really took me back. All, all questions are good. Let me just preface this by saying all questions are good. But one of the questions that they asked really was a revelation for me, and it broke my heart, and it showed me how malnutritioned uh, many, many sheep are today. Many believers are today. You get to know people When people ask specific questions, you know, you come up and ask me questions, it helps me identify where you're coming from. I mean, I know, based upon the questions that you ask me, I know where you're, gonna, where you're coming from. I know the level of, of, of skill that you have navigating through Scripture and so on and so forth. The question was this. 
how were people saved before Yeshua came? Now, it's a good question, but it broke my heart because it showed me how malnutritioned they really are. Because their point, they created a dichotomy between the Old Testament and New Testament, and they couldn't even get their mind wrapped around, well, no one could have been saved because no one's saved until Yeshua came. In reality, number one, you read Ephesians 1, Yeshua was, was literally sent to die on a cross before the foundation of the world, number one. But this is, this is what's even bigger. And this is all about perspective. And you need to have this, especially if you're going to go out and contend for the faith. If you're going to go out and defend the grace message, this is something you need to understand. That from the very beginning, from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to Malachi, the entire Tanakh, the whole Old Testament, make no mistake, there was not a righteous man who feared God that served him that was under any different assumption than the fact that they were saved by grace. Why is that important? I'll tell you why that's important. Because it actually reveals the relationship, an authentic relationship between grace and law. And you might say, Daniel, well, what do you mean? these righteous men were clinging to Torah. They were keeping his commandments. They had a zeal for truth, for that which was honorable. And it was a good thing. Yet at the same time, they were not deceived. They knew they needed salvation. They knew they needed forgiveness. I'm going to tell you something. This is what the church should look like today. We should be clinging to the Torah. We should be seeking it, studying it, but only through the lens of Yeshua knowing that apart from him, we're as good as dead. doesn't matter how much time you spend in study. It doesn't matter how much time you spend applying it. There are many Orthodox Jews today that are walking the commandments out marvelously, far more impressive than any of us. And I'm going to tell you right now, and it's horrible, if they do not accept the grace of God and put that as the pillar of their foundation, they will be lost. This is why we got to reach them. This is the importance of the grace message. You want to know why Satan would go for the jugular? It's a death kill. Certain death. You mess with the grace message and it's death. That's all that's left. I want to close today with a story in Luke. And this is a story that's very special to me because, and I can tell you this, this is a story that humbled me. This was a story that caught me, the Lord caught me in time. By his grace, not me, but he caught me in time. He put this story in front of me right at the right time that moved me from here in my own mind and brought me to the floor. It was beautiful because I was in the process. I was studying the Babylonian Talmud. I was consuming Torah like nobody's business. I read this and it really struck me. Luke 18, 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I don't have time to get in this, but it would be a lot of fun to show you the historical context of this on a much deeper level. The Pharisees, as you know, were the religious leaders. They were revered. They were respected something this country has lost sight of. They don't know how to respect the righteous men of God. There's no respect. These men were well-respected. They were renowned. They were well-known. And they devoted their lives to studying the word, teaching the word, all right? 
But then you have a tax collector. Understand something, the way the Jewish people in the time of Yeshua, they saw tax collectors as betrayers. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And tax collector for who? For Rome. It was seen as a total betrayal to their own nation to go and force their people to pay taxes to Rome, which was in the times of Yeshua was actually getting totally crazy. It was getting out of hand. And so here, Yeshua, you got to feel the gravity of this. You have two people, a Pharisee and a tax collector. In verse 11, we read the following. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And this is what gripped me because I had prayers similar to this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Isn't that holy? This guy is walking more righteously than the majority of Christians. He's filled with charity. He's giving of what he has. He fasts twice a week, Monday and Thursday. He's got it all together. And everything he looks at, everyone around you, a bunch of heathen pagans. Right? How many times, and I'm, I, I confess these things before you out of my own foolishness, that that's what I thought. I'm surrounded by total heathen pagans. Oh God, just take me out of here. I, I, don't, I don't deserve to be here. This is not my place. I'm, I'm too holy. I got to take a shower just being around these people. This is the scenario. This is legalism. This is the trap. Satan sets it. And the hook, once that's in, it's dangerous. But then we move on to verse 13. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'll tell you, you, you see people get caught in the study of Torah. Again, it's a good thing, but Satan wants to pervert it. And what he wants to do is he wants to sow into your flesh, and he wants to puff the flesh up and get you to exalt and actually follow him. Because Satan, the reason he was cast out of heaven was because of pride. He wants to bring you up. He wants to puff up your flesh. It will be your demise if you do that. One quick passage, and then we're going to close. In Daniel 9, Daniel actually prays. And this is not the entire prayer. This is the very end of the prayer. But they're in captivity. Okay, the Jewish people are in captivity. Babylon has taken God through his judgment upon them. And Daniel is crying out to his God. You're going to want to pay close attention to this. And Daniel says, now, therefore, O God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. That's the very scenario that we saw with the tax collector. Daniel was a holy and righteous, very knowledgeable man, one of the wisest in the land. And yet this man and all his wisdom and all his righteousness falls down before the holy creator. And he says, we're not going to be delivered in our righteousness. Anything we've done, it's only because of his mercy. That's the grace of God. 
That's the grace we need to cling to.